Welcome to this episode of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Larry Ostola, and today I have the pleasure to speak to Graham Broad, the editor of a new book entitled Part of Life Itself, The War Diary of Lieutenant Leslie H. Miller, Canadian Expeditionary Force, which was published earlier this year by the University of Toronto Press. Graham Broad is Associate Professor of History at King's University College at Western University. His publications include A Small Price to Pay, Consumer Culture on the Canadian Home Front, 1939 to 1945, and One in a Thousand, The Life and Death of Captain Eddie McKay, Royal Flying Corps. serves as a guide with the Canadian Battlefields Foundation, and in June of this year was in Normandy and on the Western Front with a group of university students from across Canada. Graham, thanks for joining me today, and it's great to have the chance to speak to you. Thank you for having me. So why don't we start with the author uh, of The War Diary. Who was Leslie Miller? Where was he from? And what did he do prior to his enlistment in the Canadian Expeditionary Force in 1914? Yeah, Les Miller was born in 1889 in Millican, Ontario, which is essentially Scarborough, Ontario now. Uh, he grew up on a farm and uh, probably would have had, uh, in some respects, a rather typical Canadian childhood in the late uh, 19th century. Uh, but one thing that marked him as unusual is that uh, he decided to go to the university in the early part of the 20th century at a time when maybe 1% of Canadians went to university. Uh, he attended Victoria College at the University of Toronto beginning in the, in the fall term of 1910. Uh, he was a student in the Faculty of Arts. And he proved to be an outstanding uh, undergraduate. He pursued uh, about two years of education and then uh, left before completing his undergraduate degree. He apparently found the lure of teaching jobs out west uh, too strong to resist. And so uh, he, he departed for uh, Saskatchewan, where he attended uh, the normal school, which is to say that essentially the teacher's college uh, at Stoughton, Saskatchewan in 1913-14. Um, uh, and uh, that's where he was. He was actually working as a teacher in, in Stoughton, which uh, was then and is now a very uh, tiny community uh, in the southeastern part of Saskatchewan. Uh, he was teaching there uh, and working as a, uh, a school principal when the war erupted in August of, of 1914. And then he made the decision to sign up uh, really quite early. Uh, in October of 1914, he signed up first for a militia regiment and then two months later, uh, left the militia to join the Canadian Expeditionary Force to go overseas. As you probably know, the Champlain Society uh, is dedicated to the preservation and presentation of Canada's documentary history. And so I have to ask you about the diary itself. Why don't you describe it for our listeners and tell us how it managed to survive to the present day, since, as you well know, in many cases, documents like these don't survive. Yeah. I saw an estimate one time that there's they they think there's something in the neighborhood of maybe 1,100 uh, Canadian war diaries from the First World War, and that may sound like quite a lot, but when you consider you have over 600,000 troops who served, that's actually a very very small 
uh, number of diaries that survive. And of course, the vast majority of letters, probably tens of millions of letters from that time have not survived down to the present. So Miller, uh, as I mentioned, he, he initially joined a, um, a militia unit. And it's important to understand that uh, for most of the First World War, the Canadian militia and the Canadian Expeditionary Force stood apart from one another. The militia did home front duties. Uh, but for ambitious young men who want to win the Victoria Cross, the CEF was where it was at. You wanted to get overseas. And so uh, he left the militia and joined the Canadian Expeditionary Force. And it was while he was in, in the early part of his training uh, for the Canadian Expeditionary Force, originally with the, the 32nd Battalion, that he buys a diary um, in uh, Weyburn, Saskatchewan. And he begins to t- uh, take notes uh, in that diary in January of 1915. He backtracks a little bit, filling in what had happened to him up to that point. And uh, that's the diary that he takes overseas with him. And uh, over the course of the war, he filled uh, three handwritten diaries in all. They comprise uh, about 400 pages of writing, uh, plus numerous illustrations. He was a pretty good illustrator. Uh, and at least one of the three diaries he sent home during the war. Um, the others uh, he either sent home at some point, and he doesn't make note of it in the diaries themselves, or he brought them back uh, with him when he when he returns in uh, March of 1919, four months after the war ended. And that's when he discontinues the diary. Uh, Miller died in uh, 1979. He did he did marry. Um, uh, uh, his wife, uh, Essie, was a teacher he met in, in Stoughton, Saskatchewan, but they never had any children. So upon his death, the diary went to uh, his younger brother, uh, Carmen, and Carmen kept it in his possession, and then it subsequently passed on to Carmen's uh, sons, Dan and Brant Miller, um, who uh, are still with us and and were, uh, were crucial to the development of this project. And uh, the members of the of, of um, the family subsequently produce a transcription of the diary that I used as my basis for the uh, the one that you see uh, in the book. So, in the diary itself, you spoke of illustrations. Was he actually drawing on the pages of the diary, or, or were these separate sheets that were inserted, or how, how did he handle that? He was actually physically drawing uh, in the diary itself. Um, and as I said, a, a pretty good illustrator. He tended to be either drawing what he was seeing at the moment or sometimes drawing something that he saw a little bit earlier. Uh, these sometimes consist of just observational drawings of huts or things on the horizon, uh, but occasionally he draws little maps and the like to kind of situate uh, the reader. Um, and yeah, they're, they're part of the diary. And it was a uh, when we went to press, of course, it's a bit of a challenge to get the, the typography to fit with the maps, but I think uh, the illust- original illustrations, but I think we did a pretty good job. Hmm. So Miller enlists out west, and then he crosses Canada. He ships over to England, and then he makes his way to France, uh, where he served in the signals. Uh, so when he arrives in, in France, uh, what were his responsibilities in the signals, and what was he doing at the front? So Miller served with uh, battalion-level signals initially. Um, so a battalion was a, an infantry unit of about a thousand officers and men. It's really a foundational unit in in the modern uh, armies. And the job of the signals was to provide communications within the battalion and to other uh, military units. And 
uh, it may sound like an unexciting task, but actually in, in modern armies, which are very big, um, communications was really vital uh, on the huge battlefields of the First World War. And it was extraordinarily difficult as well. And as is the case with a lot of things in the First World War, they're sitting in a technological crossroads. So in some respects, Leslie Miller's using communications methods that wouldn't have surprised Napoleon or Julius Caesar, for that matter. I mean, in some respects, they're literally running messages on, on foot. Uh, they're using carrier pigeons. Uh, they're using signal lights and flares and the like. But they're also using new technologies that have been developed in the generation or two before the First World War, which is uh, the telegraph and um, the, the telephone, and increasingly uh, a new and experimental technology that they called wireless telegraphy, uh, which is to say radio communications, but they're not yet squeezing a voice through it. They're, they're sending Morse code by wireless. And so Miller's job is not just to send signals, but to actually provide the infrastructure for signaling. And that's where his work was surprisingly dangerous. There's, it's important to understand that, especially in the first part of the war, he's not a rear echelon soldier. He's not ensconced in the rear um, sending you know, telephone messages or passing uh, 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 Morse code messages. Uh, very often when an attack goes in, for example, he's right up there at the front running uh, behind the advancing infantry with a bundle of telephone wire and the like uh, in order to lay down communications lines or he's out there repairing damaged communication lines. Another thing signalers would sometimes do is they would man forward listening posts. Uh, so these were saps that jutted out in the no man's land very precariously. And their job there was to try to intercept enemy communications. You could literally tap into the en enemy wires. As the war goes along, um, he he does get promoted. Uh, as as uh, someone with some education, it, it uh, would have proved no difficulty for him to get a commission. Uh, he enlisted as a private uh, anyway for some reason. Uh, but he eventually does get promoted, and he goes up to um, uh, division-level um, wireless telegraphy uh, work. And in those cases, he is ensconced behind the line, sort of away from the action. And his job there among other things, is to listen in on German communications, those that gather intelligence. So he'd be, he'd be translating Morse code in German, and he had a very strong facility in German from his education, and also possibly from his family history. There's some evidence that the, the German may have been spoken a bit at home. So as you were going through uh, Miller's diary, uh, what were some of the things that particularly struck you about his writing? I mean, we're talking about someone who has an advanced education. Uh, so I'm curious to know what you thought of his writing and, and the types of observations that he was actually making in the diary. One of the things that struck me about the diary from the very beginning was how remarkably articulate he is, how erudite he is. Uh, he's a remarkably well-read individual. Uh, he's a very bookish uh, sort of guy. And uh, he must have stuck out like a sore thumb a little bit. Because your average rank-and-file Canadian soldier in the First World War was was really none of those things. Um, and uh, I, this is not to say they were unintelligent. It's just that by the standards of the time, they, they, they sort of had a normal level of education, which is to say not much education at all. Uh, so he must have stuck out like a sore thumb a little bit. He, he might have seemed a bit, bit peculiar. Uh, because as you read the diary, you realize that he spends more time talking about his off-duty hours uh, than he does about what he's doing on his job. Um, he, he does describe 
some horrific instances of battle. Uh, but most of the time, he's just observing day-to-day life. And that's one of the things I found very interesting from the beginning. So he's, he, he talks about books he's reading that came from home. He talks about uh, lectures he attends on leave uh, that have to do with geopolitics. And above all, he had since childhood had a huge interest uh, in the natural world, in uh, f- flowers and plants and bird watching and, and this type of stuff. And he, he takes out the France with him. And so when uh, duty permitted, uh, he often goes off on a wander uh, in some of the some of the rear areas and meets the locals and um, has dinner at a local farmhouse and has a chat. He speaks pretty good French. Um, or he wanders off and, and takes in a local field or a brook and he, and he keeps detailed field natural notes of the types of flowers and fauna and birds and so forth that he's encountering. Uh, so even amongst all this um, absolutely horrific war, really beyond imagination, hellish environment, he, he always takes a moment to reflect upon what's beautiful, what's you know, what's delicate uh, in the natural world, and uh, he feels that these are very important things to preserve. That's an excellent point that we're going to come back to a little later on in our in our conversation, Graham. But uh, one of the things that I was struck by going through the diary of something that you mentioned was. Uh, the sheer number of books that he found the time to read uh, while he was at the front. I mean, he references many popular novels, many authors who were very well known in the day, and he he continued to be an active reader. Yeah, he actually he actually kept a list, which is sort of very him. He sort of obsessively kept notes on on the things he was doing, and uh, I think we published one of the lists uh, in the book. Uh, dozens. Uh, he finds time to read dozens of books, and he has an account with W. H. Smiths over there, and uh, he gets sent he gets sent books that he's he's ordering essentially. Uh, and so, part of his job on signals was to sit uh, by the phone, sit by the telegraph, uh, in order to pass messages. And so, in between passing messages, um, you know, when it's relatively quiet where he is. Uh, he finds all kinds of time to read. And so he's reading books of poetry. He's reading novels. It's very interesting, by the way, to, to read uh, the lists of best-selling authors he talks about because they're huge authors at the time are completely forgotten today. And I think for people who are interested in cultural history, they really need to get into to some of those books and get a sense of, of um, who some of the most popular readers uh, at, at the time were that are uh, – uh, people like Ralph Connor and others who are largely forgotten today. So why don't we get a little bit more specific now in terms of the diary? And I wonder if there are entries in the diary um, that you found particularly interesting or noteworthy that you'd like to take a couple of moments to share. Well, there's, uh, you know, it's an extensive diary. It's, uh, I think, the better part of 60,000 words. And uh, But a, a few jumped out at me, um, in, including the one that I drew the title of the book from, Part of Life Itself, and that's one of his reflections on, on the natural world. But one, as I was you know, prepping to, to, to talk to you about it today, and, it, and it's been a great pleasure to, to go through his diary again, um, one that really struck, uh, stuck out at me was uh, on Sunday, April 25th. Uh, he's still in England. Uh, the, the unit is training before being deployed to France. And maybe I'll just read you some selections from it because I, I think it's the largest single entry in the in the diary. But it's uh, Sunday, uh, April twenty fifth. Our battalion was placed under quarantine for measles on Friday, and we do not know yet how long we will be so confined. So full stop. 
you know, we've just come through a pandemic. Uh, and here's an age where uh, communicable diseases were, were still a major killer, especially of young people. Uh, pretty much anyone who grew to adulthood would have had a sibling or something who died of, you know, measles or some kind of pox or scarlet fever or something like that. It would have been a very common experience. Tuberculosis, of course, later, a major, major killer uh, at the time. So they're under quarantine for measles. Um, he's, and then, you know, he goes on to say, um, we carry on drill as usual. Yesterday afternoon, most of the fellows played football or watched the games. And of course, when they say football, they're, they're really talking about one of two sports, or they're talking about soccer, or they're talking about rugby. So football with forward passes, American football doesn't exist yet. Uh, picked team from A and B companies and played a match game. Others like myself remained in the barracks and read or wrote letters. So sport is a very important part of, of uh, young young people, especially young men's life at the time. And again, they carried that into the service with them. But of course, he stays behind and he, he writes letters. Uh, and then he talks about how they went on. They, they sang songs and uh, they, uh, they had a few beers and there were some uh, boxing uh, matches were helped. Um, and then, you know, he, he, he goes on to describe the fact that uh, this army life ain't, ain't so bad. And I think this is something, too, that it's difficult for our generation to process, that the material conditions of life in the army, and even to an extent on the trenches at the time, wouldn't have been that far removed from civilian life for a lot of people in the late 19th and early 20th century. I mean, you know, he grows up on a farm in southwestern Ontario. There's no electricity. There's no, there's no probably, that would have been heated with wood, right, in, in the winter, probably a drafty farmhouse, um, disease would be an everyday part of life. Being a bit dirty, but everyday part of life. Uh, there's not going to be a lot of hot water in the winter, you know. And and if you if you'd say worked in the mines or something like that in northern Ontario or Cape Britain, the day to day material conditions of being on the Western Front wouldn't have seemed that much that much worse. And he talks about this. He says, um, at times, my present experience seems like a dream or an illusion when I consider the food we eat, the lack of comforts we endure. The kind of work we spend our days at, I wonder uh, how we can endure the change. And yet, I cannot definitively point to one feature of our life and say, this is a crime and it ought not to be. I've never enjoyed perfect health for so long a period before. So he actually says, I'm actually healthier now than I was in civilian life. Probably because he's getting fed three square a day and he actually notes. Uh, George Leeson, my chum from Stoughton, says, I've grown very fat since enlisting. I sleep soundly every night. Blankets seem to give as much comfort and warmth as proper clean sheets and bedclothes. We keep reasonably clean here as in civilian life. We all have warm, comfortable clothes we need. We don't get much pay. But then he goes on to say, we don't need much money anyway in the Army. Everything's, everything's provided for. So it's actually really quite interesting. And uh, he sort of goes on to say, I'm, I'm kind of enjoying this experience. And it concludes with a really interesting remark about how people from home have been sending gifts and he says, uh, Mrs. Stewart sent a lovely box of chocolates, which I shared with the boys in the hut. The people of the maritime provinces are intensely loyal. Such gifts and letters are much appreciated by us. You can get nearer to a soldier's heart with a box of candy or a cake than with all the fine words or polished speeches of praise that could ever be written or spoken. Yeah, that's lovely. So just, just building on the point you were making uh, about the way in which he wrote his diary and so on, one of the things that struck me as I went through it was how remarkably dispassionate and matter-of-fact he seemed to be 
about what he was experiencing and, and about the extraordinary circumstances that he found himself in. So when I was reading, I was thinking, was he writing this diary for his own future recollection or was he writing um, in terms of shielding perhaps others from some of the experiences that he was actually living? And, and I wonder what you think of that. I wondered myself as I was writing it and to such an extent that I even wondered if at some future date he hadn't made corrections or adjustments. But I, having seen the uh, um, scans of the originals, I don't, I, I don't see any indication of that. Um, I, I think maybe some of the entries he seems to just be recording for the sake of uh, jogging his future, his memory at some future date, if he wanted to look back on it, uh, which is why he seems to go out of his way to mention every person he encounters. And he mentions hundreds of people. And I, I do my best to try to run all these people down and inform the reader who they are. Um, he mentions every little town he passes through and so forth. At the same time, again, he's an educated guy. He had a sense of history and I think he had an awareness that he is caught up in, in a momentous events, even though he never really thinks of it on a geopolitical scale. He's, he's writing on a micro, microcosmic scale. Um, and, and in so doing, I, I think he had a sense of, of moment, a sense that, that this diary will be a historical record in the course of time, um, especially early in the war, I think. Later in the war, his diary writing falls off a bit until the very end of the war when it picks up again. But especially early in the war, he does really seem to have a sense that he's caught up in something momentous. And he seems to be writing uh, for some imaginary reader, people like you and I, I think, in the future. I don't think that's, that's romantic of me to say that. Um, you mentioned about sh you know, shielding people from the horrors, and he is dispassionate when he writes. And yet, you know, one of the other passages that struck me was that at times he does recount really grisly things. And he recounts... Um, uh, in June of uh, 1916, going through what was called Maple Cops. Maple Cops was a, uh, a field hospital, had a cemetery attached to it, and it got worked over by German artillery. And so all the dead bodies got disinterred forcibly, essentially. And he, he describes it in, in detail. He said, it's by far the worst sight I've ever seen. The smells are sickening. And if you go to Maple Cops today, it's now a Commonwealth War Graves Commission cemetery. And um, all the graves indicate that we're not actually sure who's beneath this grave because of that, because of that event. And he describes it in, in considerable detail. Um, so I don't think he's trying to shield any, anybody from the horrors of war, but then, you know, the very next passage, he goes off and talks about going and buying eggs from the locals or, or what have you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition there. Yeah. Yeah. But the other entry in the diary that I think of was when he describes having to physically crawl across a comrade who'd been killed and just sort of matter-of-factly observing, saying that's like the first casualty I've seen. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, this for me is always the great mystery of the First World War, which is how did they cope psychologically with that um, death on a scale that would be I think even for combat soldiers today would be difficult to process because this is sustained combat, you know, day after day, after day, year after year. Uh, and of course, many of them didn't cope. You know, we have to remember that there was what they called shell shock at the, t at the time that we might, we might call PTSD today or something um, did happen to a lot of people. 
but others find a variety of different coping mechanisms to get through. And Miller's main coping mechanism seems to be uh, comradeship with the other soldiers who he thinks the world of. He never says an unkind word about any other soldier uh, that he knows. And um, the world the world of books and the world of flowers and fauna and, and the natural world, that, that, seems to, that seems to pull him through these, these occasionally terrible things that, uh, that he recounts in the diary. Again, as you were going through it, were there, were there other things that maybe surprised you or gave you cause to pause, uh, a cause for pause rather, uh, as you were thinking about them? There were, there were a few things. One is he gives really good accounts of some forgotten battles. Um, Montserrat, uh, Saint Eloi craters in 1916. Uh, these were battles that seared themselves into the memory of a generation at the time, but are largely forgotten today. So I think the diary is important for that for that reason. Um, and yet, other battles that loom enormously large in our imagination, Fimi Ridge would be a good example. He mentions in passing, after the fact. Oh, we took Fimi Ridge. Uh, that's sort of the extent of it. Um, so that was, that was one thing to, to try to pick out what he felt at the time was important as opposed to what we in retrospect think is important. But I think the thing that, that struck me most about it was the, the complete lack of bitterness. Uh, he, uh, we know that some soldiers came away embittered, uh, disillusioned, cynical, uh, because of the experience of modern war and, there's that tension between the kind of, you know, the Rupert Brooke, he actually referenced Rupert Brooke, famous poem, you know, the soldier, if I should die, I think only this of me, there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England, that sort of sentiment, that romantic sentiment about war, and the sort of more grotesque, cynical, Wilfred Owen, you know, view of view of war, that if, if you could see the things that I've seen, you'd never again utter those, those words, that it's sweet and fitting to die for your country. And there's tension between those two positions within, within the soldier's uh, themselves. And Miller seems to stay almost, if not on the romantic side, he's certainly not cynical. He's certainly not bitter. There's never a word of bitterness expressed about his fellow soldiers, about his commanding officers, and not even about the enemy. I think that's what's really remarkable. He's, he's frank where he, that he, about whose side he's on. You know, he feels the Germans are in the wrong, but he, he can't uh, generate any anger in himself towards your ordinary German soldier. Um, and the, in the entire diary, he only ever actually makes one slightly embittered remark. And that's at the very end of the war. He, he takes a dig at the uh, army chaplains. Uh, he feels that um, their, uh, their religion actually hasn't helped soldiers through. And he's, he's rather bitter about them. But other than that, there's, he's, he, emerges, he emerges from the war a very even-tempered guy. Well, and it was, uh, I mean, you alluded to it, it was remarkable to me that he's actually encountering a German prisoners of war who've been brought back through the lines, and because he speaks German, he's able to communicate with them and give them cigarettes and chat and so on. And so, uh, again, what you said about uh, a lack of bitterness towards a soldier on the other side of the front line. Yeah, he actually expresses great sympathy in the one case. He remarks about you know, this poor fellow who was so frightened he could barely speak. Um, and, and, and that can't simply be because of the position he was in, because again, as, as you noted earlier, he does see combat. Uh, he is very often right up there with, with the, right behind the frontline infantry and people in front of him are getting killed as he's, as he's crawling, crawling along on his belly. So, 
um, yeah, he, he, he has a very humane, uh, humanistic, really, uh, view of the war that, that remains intact throughout. Well, so Graham, to wrap up, I'd like to, to bring us to a very touching aspect of Leslie Miller's story. And it's actually something that brings us back to what we were talking about earlier with reference to the natural world. Uh, it's not directly related to the writing of the diary, uh, but uh, it's quite a legacy and it's a legacy known as the Vimy Oaks. Uh, why don't you tell us about them? As you mentioned, it's quite a touching and imaginative project. So Miller apparently returned from Europe uh, with a cluster of acorns uh, that he uh, gathered overseas. And these he subsequently planted uh, on, his, uh, on his farm in, in Milliken, uh, where they grew. And he dubbed that uh, woodlot, and indeed the entire uh, farm operation eventually, uh, the Vimy Oaks. And so the, uh, the family lore has it that, that those oak trees came from Vimy Ridge itself. Now, I should note that Miller does not in the diary recount anything about uh, gathering those, those acorns. Um, but I, th- I think it's almost certain he returned from the Western Front with, with those acorns. Uh, did he get them from Vimy Ridge? I think there's a good chance he did. Again, he was he was very concerned about the the natural world and getting things right, and so it seems it would be out of character. I think if if he if he dubbed the woodlot the Vimy Oaks, if the if the acorns didn't come from Vimy Ridge. Anyway, the family farm is now gone. Uh, there's now a church uh, where the Vimy Oaks still grow, and um, a little over a decade ago, uh, some people got the idea that they could they could take these original acorns that had come from uh, the Western Front in France, uh, and repatriate them back to Vimy Ridge, uh, where no oak trees stand. And uh, obviously, that's a very complex process uh, because you're introducing what's now essentially foreign, you know, uh, foreign species, invasive species. You know, uh, but they've they've managed to do so in cooperation with the French government. And uh, so there, if you go to Vimy Ridge today, there are Vimy oaks uh, growing from Les Miller's uh, acorns uh, back at Vimy Ridge uh, at the visitor center. And there's also a, a, a Vimy Park uh, that's being created uh, near the base of the memorial, just down the road from where you, you enter, enter the memorial. And um, yeah, it's, it's a very imaginative and touching project, I think, that serves as a bridge really between those who returned and those who did not. And I should note too that uh, Vimy Oak saplings are being planted in various locations across Canada. There's three here at at the University of Western Ontario, uh, where I teach, for example. Really, what we're talking about is a legacy of Leslie Miller's that really does live on. Yep, I think it's a lovely project. I think it's one that uh, suits the the man. As I said, he seems to have been a deeply humane man with a a lifelong interest in, in the natural world. Well, Graham, on that note, I'd like to thank you very much for having taken the time today to speak to me and tell us about your book. My guest today was Graham Broad. His book, Part of Life Itself, The War Diary of Lieutenant Leslie H. Miller, Canadian Expeditionary Force, was published earlier this year by the University of Toronto Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, 
please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. You can also send us an email at info at This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Larry Ostola. This interview was recorded on December the 19th, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team, who also support the Champlain Society. <laughs>